Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, November 3rd. What does the economic outlook look like for 2024 in Calgary? We catch up with Mayor Jyoti Gondek to get her thoughts on the state of the Calgary economy and what we can expect to see in the next 12 months ahead. Then we head stateside for a look at the latest news making headlines, including the aftermath of last week's deadly shooting in the state of Maine. We speak with Global News Washington correspondent Jennifer Johnson. And finally, have you reached your tipping, tipping point? We do a deep dive into the practice of tipping, the history behind it, and just how much we should be leaving for a gratuity with food reporter and author Corey Mintz. Mayor Jyoti Gondek spoke at the Calgary Economic Development's 2024 Calgary Economic Outlook Conference. What's in the cards for the city as we flip the calendar from 2023 to 2024? With details, we're joined, as we are each and every Friday, with Mayor Jyoti Gondek. Good morning to you, Madam Mayor. Good morning, Andy. How are you? Good. So, so what was your biggest takeaway from discussions around Calgary's economic outlook for next year? What's your takeaway? It was um, very well attended and there was a lot of people with expertise that were presenting and Calgary is in pretty good shape to weather a similar type of storm that we're going to see across the country. Um, We are still in a high interest rate environment. We've still got inflation to contend with. And, you know, Calgary in particular has a lot of people moving here and we've got to make sure we've got affordable housing available for them and a good quality of life. So while there are some challenges on the horizon, uh, these are the same challenges that we share across the country. And we have taken a lot of measures to make sure that we can uh, get past them. And I know that Calgary Economic Development is doing really good work in that regard. So we are all very hopeful hopeful and optimistic. Do you do, do you feel I mean I'm sure you do but are we do we have the reputation as still an attractive destination for investment for you know global energy projects etc is that something that we're still on track with? Yeah Sue we absolutely have that reputation I mean from our traditional reputation of being a force in the energy sector we are still viewed that way and in particular now because we have been talking about energy transformation we've been talking about the technology that we've been deploying in our city um, that will actually benefit the world. Uh, The fact that we are the safest and most secure energy provider uh, globally, all of those things bode very well for us. And I would also say that some of the measures that we've taken towards downtown revitalization, we've spent $153 million in an incentive program to move office space to residential. And the result has been $567 million flowing from the private sector. So we are in really good shape. People are talking about us and uh, the market is pretty bullish on Calgary. Mayor Gondek, you spoke out about the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau offering to help the City of Toronto, yet we're still waiting for some help here in our municipality. How do you feel about that and is there a process or path in place in order to get the ear of the Prime Minister? Well, so for years, and particularly these last two years that I've been mayor, I've been working with the big city mayors across the country through the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, and we have repeatedly told the federal government that we need a new deal. As recently as June this year at the uh, Federation of Canadian Municipalities Conference in Toronto, we delivered that message, and the Prime Minister actually said, I understand that we need more work here. Um, So to have an announcement that there's going to be some work with Toronto without talking to anyone else was quite surprising, jarring, if you will. And I can tell you that there's other mayors across this country that are saying, how did you determine that this would be the first city you'd work with? Hey, what about us? Right? Yeah, especially considering that we put out a full 
report with all kinds of empirical evidence about the gap that we have, $311 million every year that we're making up. I mean, it would have been nice to have a conversation before that announcement. Very, very true. So, I mean, do the mayors, do you join forces? Do you do you try to send a message to the prime minister, a letter, or what does that look like? We're going to have to join forces. And you know what? Letters and phone calls don't seem to be working. So I think we're just going to have to be incredibly loud and very vocal about the fact that every municipality needs support right now. And big cities in particular have been asking for a better deal for a very long time. And it cannot be one-off. It has to be a consistent program. I got to ask you this next one, uh, Mayor Gondek, because we are the official. Well, it's Stamps on FM here on QR Calgary. We've been talking about the game, getting everybody amped up for tomorrow night's uh, tilt against the BC Lions. Now, you have actually taken it one step further. You've put some skin on the line. Tell us about your bet with Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. What is up uh, for, for the winner or the loser, as it may be? So Mayor Sim called me up a couple of days ago and said, hey, what do you think? What about the losing uh, mayor has to wear the other team's jersey and proclaim the other team, uh, the other team's day in their city? So for him, he would have to announce that it's Calgary Stampeders Day after the terrible loss that they're going to suffer tomorrow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he asked for my jersey size and I said, it's it's irrelevant. Tell me yours so I can <laughs> ship a Stamps jersey yes. out to you. You know, it's going to be good. We've, we've got a mayor for a quarterback. Seriously, it's going to be so easy. (laughs) I love the confidence. Fantastic. Uh, Mayor, I know you've been listening, but we'll just remind you, we've been talking about tipping all day today. Have you reached your tipping tipping point or are you sort of known as a big tipper and you tip everywhere you go? You know, I do tip. And it's important to understand that there are industries where people are making, you know, just barely a wage that they can function on. And so when I receive good service, I do make sure that I tip. But I think we've got a very interesting proposition in front of us that's been around forever. Is it the responsibility of the customer to make sure that people who are working in places are kept whole? Or is there a better way to do this? And so, you know, having worked in uh, the service sector, like I used to work at the keg in Winnipeg, I worked at a couple of restaurants in Vancouver. You know, the the tip pool is a big deal, and there's ways that it's split up amongst all of the staff. So you're not just tipping your server, if we're using restaurants as an example. It's the people that are washing the dishes, the people that are cooking the food, the hostess, all of those folks. So it is an important system that we have, but is it the right one? And I don't really have the answer to that. I'm going to play devil's advocate here, uh, Madam Mayor, right now, and say, and you said this, and we've got a lot of, of text on this, and I've read it uh, many times in the past, which is, you know, a restaurant, you know, they, they, they're not making a living wage. Well, they're making $15 an hour, and I want to submit to you, as I've submitted to Sue, we've talked about this, maybe every job is not supposed to be, you know, a job that you can ha- make as a career. Like when I worked at Wendy's as a fry guy back mm-hmm. in the 80s, mm-hmm. $3.40 an hour, uh, that was not going to happen. So, so should we not just come to terms with that? And if people aren't getting paid enough, they should maybe look at upgrading or, or finding another, you know, career path. Well, you raise a really good point. And I would say, you know, back in the day when those kinds of jobs were considered to be after school jobs or, you know, just your first job. um, okay, I could live with that. But when you're thinking about people that are struggling to put food on the table for their families, and this is just one of the two or three jobs that they hold to make ends meet, then $15 an hour isn't cutting it. So I think the nature of work has changed and the labor force makeup is not what it used to be. So again, this is pretty complex and I think someone needs to be unpacking how we can make it better. 
I like that. Let's let's talk about that. Maybe that's something you can bring to council as you talk to everybody on council and we just boost, I don't know, maybe we don't, we just eliminate tipping altogether in Calgary. And make that a, a, something that our municipality stands for here. <laughs> it's not going to fly, is it? Never mind. It's not going to fly. No. And you know what? I would feel terribly for the people that rely on those tips. And that's, I know. Imagine if that's her legacy. Yeah. Remember Mayor, Mayor Gondek? Mayor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe we'll, th- we'll think that through a little bit more. But um, we appreciate it because it really is. It's a complex issue and there's a lot involved in it. And I just think it's kind of gotten to the point where we're expected to tip on everything. And, and I think people are at their tipping point with that. Oh, I see what you did there. I like that. She's clever. Thank you very much. Thank you for always joining us and participating in our conversations, Mayor. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on and have an excellent weekend. Thanks, you too. Jody Gondek, Calgary Mayor. A little over a week since the deadly shooting in Maine, former President Donald Trump. We've got lots to talk about as we are joined this morning by Global News Washington correspondent Jennifer Johnson. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Sue. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us. Lots to talk about, as always, uh, with the recent shooting in Maine. Any meaningful action to address gun violence in the U.S.? Wait, let me guess. I know the answer already. Yeah, you know the answer already. Crickets. Absolutely nothing. I mean, as usual, the Democrats are calling for an assault weapons ban, and the Republicans have no intention of taking up a bill in the House, even letting a bill go to committee. Um, President Biden is heading to Lewiston, Maine this afternoon to visit with victims' families. Um, and again, he has called for a ban on assault weapons. The, the, the explosion of mass shootings since the assault weapons ban um, was – well, President Clinton put in an assault weapons ban, and under President Bush, um, it was overturned. And since then, there's just been an explosion in mass shootings in America. And despite the statistics, despite the polls that show that most Americans would like an assault weapons ban, you know, tighter background checks, et cetera, et cetera, nothing ever gets done, and that's on the Republican Party. Jennifer, it's easy for us to read these articles, and, yeah, the numbers are closer to 600 mass shootings in 2023 than 500. We can read these stats, and we know about the lobby groups. We're hearing about the bureaucracy and red tape. But what what are the everyday Americans saying at coffee shops? Are the everyday people uh, divided on this, or are, are they taking a side? Well, I mean, I would say that they're divided. I mean, not not for the most part when it comes to assault weapons. Um, because even gun owners, responsible gun owners, believe that, you know, you've got to be careful on who you give a weapon of war to. So in terms of assault weapons, I think there's there's more of a consensus in Americans with Americans that there should be some kind of ban, um, some stronger restrictions. Um, but when it comes to regular gun control, like overall gun control, it's a very divided country. I mean, there's many Republicans that feel like Democrats are coming after all their guns. and They're going to take their, you know, their pistols that they have at home to protect themselves with their hunting rifles away. And, and that's really not true. Um, I think that the majority of the people I talk to say, you know, I feel like I can't even go to the ball without being concerned. I and now I can't go to a bowling alley. Mm-hmm. I can't go to church. I feel nervous going, you know, anywhere, really. Um, and so uh, this this would not be a difficult sell for the American people if they reinstated the assault weapons ban. But um, like I said, the Republican Party is just not going to do it. The NRA is too powerful um, and they believe that, um, you know, that their base 
doesn't want it, and it's just not going to happen, especially now with the Congress divided. It's but so crazy. We have this discussion year after year, mass shooting after mass shooting. It really is so strange to us. I was down in the U.S. not too long ago, and honestly, like I'm, when I, I was in a big stadium, and I thought about it. You know, like, oh, yeah. because we're so not used to it as Canadians. It's just amazing. Nothing is being done. Anyway, let's change topics. We'll talk about another topic that we often discuss with you, and that's former President Donald Trump back on trial this week, <laughs> being accused of violating gag orders. I mean, does Trump face any prison time for any of these things, really and truly? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because I don't think this judge is He'll violate the gag order and he ain't fine. He's going to violate again and the fine's going to go up. He's going to keep doing this. I don't think this judge is going to put a, a former president in jail over it. If it were you and me, we'd be in jail after the second time. Um, but it's, you know, that's not going to – I don't see it happening. I just don't see him putting handcuffs on a former president over a gag order or violation and putting him in jail. That, that's just my guess. Okay, but, I mean, he keeps violating it, so I don't know what the next step is. So he doesn't Maybe. go to jail, perhaps, but, but what does this do to affect his run uh, you know, for president uh, for president once again, his return, so to speak? I, you know, Donald Trump, with his base, he, he can do no wrong. I mean, he, you know, he says all these things on his social media platform that aren't true, and his followers believe it, and he's continued. That's where – that's what he's doing he's putting all kinds of things about the judge and the judge's clerk on truth social and um you know it, it, i don't think it has any effect on his base whether or not he's convicted in this trial I, I don't know i don't think anything really affects his base it's certainly i mean i should say that i do talk to republicans now that voted for donald trump i just had lunch with a girlfriend of mine she's voted for donald trump in 2016 2020 she said i won't vote for him again but i said what if it don't, what if he gets the party's nomination then what she said I'd vote for him again. Yeah. I mean, that's where it gets, you know, that's where the, the waters get muddy because yeah. this guy may end up being the party's nominee. And nobody strays so, from party lines, right? I mean, it's that very... Nobody, yeah. yeah, not in America. Nobody strays from party lines, not too often. So, it, you know, it, we've got trial after trial, indictment after indictment, accusation after ex- accusation. People are turning in the Georgia case that were indicted, you know, with him, and they're going to testify against him. Now he's saying, you know, I didn't know this one. This one wasn't my lawyer. <laughs> it's always an excuse, and his face always buys it. Let's talk about something a little more positive. U.S. employers adding 150,000 jobs in October. That just came down on the wire. Drop in hiring, but reflects the auto worker strike probably last month. Where are we with the auto stri- uh, the auto worker strike, Jen? Um, well, apparently close to an agreement with Solantis, but still um, not close to an agreement with the other two automakers, the last I checked. Um, but, you know, back to the jobs report, the jobs reports in America keep getting better and better. I mean, they, they, traditionally, month after month under the Biden administration, they've been good. The problem is the inflation down here is just it's not budging. And so... You know, what people are more focused on is the fact that gas prices are still very high, grocery prices are still very high, and mortgage rates are through the roof. And so, you know, the Biden administration is in a tough situation where people vote their wallets, and their wallets aren't great, although there's a lot of economic reports that come out that are good. Okay, let's switch gears one last time here and talk, uh, Jennifer, about the Israel-Hamas war. Now 28 days in, what role is the U.S. playing to try and negotiate a humanitarian pause to the war and bring peace back to the region? Uh, what What is the approach? Well, so 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken is just arrived in Tel Aviv, and he is going there to um, encourage, really beg Israel to take a humanitarian pause in the fighting and the bombardment of Gaza, because at least half the residents of that territory are still stuck there. And um, women and children are being killed in the bombardments. And so what he's trying to ask Israel to do and what the president has, is also asking Israel to do is just take a break so that um, many of these people can get out and cross into the border to Egypt and, you know, won't be killed. And so that's why he's there, and, we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. It's, he's just asking for a pause in the fighting, not an end to it. Um, so, you know, we'll see. We'll see. What are you up to this weekend? Any fun plans? I'm going to play pickleball. Oh, are you? Is it as popular? <laughs> yeah. It's hugely popular here in Canada. I'm assuming same, same in the States. Hugely popular. Yeah. It is. It's a fun game. Yeah. It's a fun game. My husband's all in. We're tennis players, so it's been a you know somewhat easier transition to you know learn pickleball. Yeah, he's all in on the tournaments, and so here I go. Go get <laughs> That's him. What we're doing? Beat your husband in the pickleball game. Have fun. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you, Jennifer. Have a great Have a great weekend. You too, Jennifer Johnson is Global News Washington correspondent. had been standard for years, but lately the pre-programmed tipping options at restaurants started 18, moved to 20, and even 25% of your bill. Have you reached your tipping tipping point? Joining us to discuss is Corey Mintz, food reporter and author of The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them. Good morning to you, Corey. Morning, Andy. Don't forget the last part of the title. It's And What Comes After. That's the hopeful part. Oh, perfect. (laughs) And What Comes After. I like that. I like to be hopeful. Absolutely. And I'd like to be hopeful that we can get to the bottom of this tipping dilemma. It just seems like it's here, there, and everywhere. Uh, Before we get into the numbers going up on these suggestions, on these electronics when they hand them to us at the end of the meal. Uh, you know, why do we tip as a society? Where was tipping born, so to speak? Uh, tipping comes out of the previous century and effectively post-Civil War in the United States as a method of employing, without having to fully compensate, a whole workforce, formerly enslaved people, who previously didn't have to be paid at all. And it was sort of a custom that was appropriated from Europe, where it was a matter of genuine sort of um, courtesy among aristocracy to leave a little money for people. And they thought, oh, maybe we can do this uh, in America with service staff. And it was sort of incorporated into hospitality and railroads. And along the way, it got codified into law in Canada, the United States. And they figured, well, if this is how people are making the majority of their earnings in these sectors, then we can let's make it a law that we can legally pay them less. And so since the, the 30s, that's been the law in various ways. And, and in the States, it's different from every state. But um, in Canada, we've largely phased that out in a number of provinces, the sub-minimum wage. But still, the tipping culture has persisted. And has, I think, just gotten out of hand of late. I mean, it's not even just at the, in the service industry anymore. It's no matter where you go or what you do. We've heard from people who say now when you do an oil change, you're getting a tip option when you go to pay with your credit card or your debit card. I mean, you go to anywhere and people are just doing their job and now we're expected, 
I'm assuming, expected because we get the terminal that says, here, here's your where you can tip and how much you can tip. It's just gotten out of hand. Yeah, and when we talk about tip creep, it's important to sort of swap that into two categories, which you both you both alluded to. There's the tip creep of where and when we're asked to tip in more and more places, more and more retail environments, fast food, the drive-through, and then there's the tip creep of, as you said at the beginning, the percentage we are prompted by the digital terminals uh, has grown from, and I still see ranges. Uh, you know, I, I've seen been places where I was prompted as little as five to fifteen percent, but I've seen it go um, twenty, twenty-five, thirty percent. Mm. It's it's crazy how it has seemed to have leapt up. And again, I think these are the suggestions. So so to that to that point, when it comes to these suggestions, so to speak. How much should we be tipping? Like, how do I know, you know, what I should be paying my uh, waiter or waitress um, as far as the service I'm receiving? Do I look at it as I did not get enough service, and so I'm going to, you know, show them with my tip, have my voice being, you know, heard there? Or do I, if it's fantastic, consider 25%? How do I know as a regular consumer? I think, you know, I was raised with this attitude that tips are uh, a reflection of our appreciation for the meal, a thank you or reward, a demonstration of our generosity. Uh, I, I don't believe that anymore. I mean, I've, I've worked in the restaurant industry and I've been reporting on it for the past 15 years. And, and I understand now, given the origins of tippings, that um, they're not a reward. They're a subsidy for wages. You know, you've got a class of workers legally paid less and would not do that job for less. And the expectation is the customer will subsidize their wages. And it's a cultural expectation. The idea that it's a reflection of the specific uh, tasks that they performed or how well they performed, I think is, is awful. And it leads to a number of negative outcomes within the restaurant space, a number of abuses that go both ways. Uh, I've tipped 20% and always have, whether the service is great or terrible, Partly because I also, you know, I write about food and I just don't want to get a reputation as that guy. Yeah. yeah. Awful tip on time. So I can't tip less. But I think I think we just have to let go of that idea that, and, and some people love this. This is why some customers will argue adamantly that, you know, you cannot change tipping at all because that's their opportunity to show the customers what their services are worth, which I think is is toxic, that most of us would not like it if our clients or our customers determined how much we make. That would be an unhealthy relationship. But I say you, you figure out what you tip in a certain situation and you always tip the same amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 please. Do you know, Corey, because we had a lot of people when we started this conversation yesterday saying that, you know, when you tip, so if I go to a sandwich shop, I'm now getting prompted to to give somebody a tip for actually just doing their job, right? Mm. So does that tip have to go to the employees or is there a rule or a law or anything? Because some people are saying that, you know, management or the owners of that, that location are just, they're just taking it themselves. So who's actually getting that money? It's different in every province and every state, but the overwhelming majority of labor laws um, determine that employees must receive the tip. It cannot be distributed to ownership, but sometimes that can be management depending on whether they're doing, you know, depending on how their tasks are defined. I think the thing for people to comprehend is that, you know, half of restaurants this year, according to recent data, are, are losing money. Um, in 2019, that was 12%. And given that 
TIPS have always been a tool for subsidizing wages, and labor costs have been going up along with every other cost in double digits, uh, food costs, rent. The one thing that operators can do to slightly mitigate that is more tip prompts, higher tip prompts in order to mitigate their labor costs, which, you know, which would be going up tremendously. I think that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to offload some of that cost onto us consumers. And yeah, hopefully it's being distributed back amongst workers. We have no way of knowing that. Whenever I see it, I usually ask. I don't ask in person. I don't ask the person at the terminal because they're often working for minimum wage or there's a line of people behind me. It's kind of rude and confrontational. But I will get in touch with the business to ask how their tips are divided. And if I, I usually get the answer, yes, 100% goes to workers. If I don't get that answer, if I don't get any answer, then I kind of, I have a reason to assume something shady is going mm-hmm. on. I don't go back to that business. Yeah. yeah but it's interesting, Corey, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because one of my favorite breakfast restaurants, my simple like breakfast sandwich went up $5. And, and I, I guess what I'm getting at is digging into the pandemic and the effect the pandemic had and supply chain and inflation. This breakfast dish goes up 5 bucks. I pay the extra 5 bucks. I don't get that kind of a, a raise at my work to match inflation. And then I'm asked to tip more to my waiter. Uh, so I'm paying more for everything. There mm-hmm. seems like I'm the one taking the hit here. Right. So it seems that way. And yes, uh, I'm in the same boat. All of our costs are going up faster than our earnings are going up. In the restaurant space, the same is happening to all the players, the workers, the owners. What we've seen is, you know, Yes, many customers like yourself are eating the cost and going, I love this place, I love this meal, I'm going to pay a little more. But on the whole, sales are down, number of visitors are down. We've reached a certain point where people have said, I don't have the discretionary spending to eat out or to spend as much as I used to. And so restaurant sales are starting to decrease month over month, month over month. It's a fascinating discussion, and it gets people worked up for sure. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Corey. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank Thank, you. Thanks, Corey Mintz, food reporter and author of The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them and What Comes After. You can find out more at coreymintz.ca.